Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the podcast where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry. I am a writer here in L.A. I am Lynn Sternberger. I'm also a television writer. My name is Sita Sean. I'm a stand-up comedian and writer. Today we'll be discussing the sixth episode of the third season, A Rich Find, written by Alex Lambert, who, according to your notes here, Lynn, is a lady. Woohoo! Yeah, it's a lady. And directed by Tim Hunter. This first aired on July 16th, 2006. Bullock and Swearingen contemplate a preemptive strike against Hearst. Isn't it too late for that? <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of the century. Yeah. Aunt Lou reunites with her son, Odell, who brings a business proposal to his mother's employer. Trixie confronts Alma regarding her returning drug habit and Ellsworth moving out of their home as Leon informs Tolliver of the situation regarding Alma. An ailing Jane moves in with Joni. I love that that got equal shrift with like a strike against Hearst. It was literally like, like one a scene at the end. It was, yes, it was very brief, but I will, I will hold on to it with both hands because these things matter right. to me. We do see a little more of Jane in this episode because I think it's like the second scene of the episode. She's working with the general on building Hosteller's casket, which is very sad. Yeah, I definitely feel like these two have less of a grip on carpentry than Bullock did. <laughs> you, you know, they're not going to write poems about the wood. And then it's oak for the sides and the beautiful handles are a mahogany. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. I think Jane even says something like, well, the worms are going to get him in that or something <laughs> equally beautiful. <laughs> I do love that Jane is like, I don't give a fuck what people think if I bury this guy. Like, she has some of the best lines. I, I really missed her. Her through line is like summed up in question I wake to in the morning and pass out to at night. What's my popularity with my fellow white people? <laughs> <laughs> so about that strike against Hearst, we pick up the next morning from the last episode. So Hearst has been left in jail all night. Next to the same dead Cornishman that Blazanov and Merrick came across in the street in the previous episode. Of course, the third dead unionizer so far this season. Charlie also makes some poor decisions in how to deal with Hearst, similar to Seth in the previous episode. It's like no one can help themselves when they're faced with him. And then later they have to go back and be like, I think I might have done a bad thing by showing my ass to Mr. Hurst. I will say I found this fucking entertaining as fuck. Yeah, it I is. thought he was so funny. But then he only comes to regret it later. Does he really, really regret it? Or does he just have to kind of confess what he might have done that was ill-advised? I, I don't know that there, that anyone has done anything not ill-advised regarding <laughs> Hurst at this point. I'm just going to say it. if Charlie was going to do a stand-up set, I would go to it. He has this kind of insidious, cutting humor. It's very dark. He's missing his calling, delivering packages. Well, he's also doing that thing where you end the punchline with the with the joke. And so he's doing it by repeating George Hearst's name over and over again. Oh, yeah. He's calling him George and, like, <laughs> No, he's repeating his full name over yeah. and over again. Yeah. So it's, it's like... He says something and it's like, and that is George Hurst. <laughs> Which works really well from like a callback sort of standpoint yeah. if you were really talking about the craft of joke writing. <laughs> it's really good on the fundamentals. Sita, there. I would read an essay written by you about Charlie Utter's craftsmanship. I would <laughs> pay you a lot of money to dress as Charlie Utter and deliver a stand-up set is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm willing to do it for no money. <laughs> 
when we do our live episode for our 10 fans and recreate some of these scenes. I claim Charlie Utter. (laughs) No, Sita, I think you'll just have to be everybody because you're the only one who can do the voices. So it'll be like a one-woman show where it's you've got Bullock's cowboy hat and you've got Joni's top hat and you've got, like, I don't know, something gnarly that declares you're Charlie Utter. I mean, Brandy does a pretty good George Hurst, though. I can do these impressions, but I can't do them on demand. This was the same thing when we did the Downton Abbey podcast. Like, sometimes I would just burst into an accent and they'd be like, where did that come from? <laughs> like, just a moment of inspiration. I can't call it up again until I feel inspired. Uh, so, wait, back to the episode, guys. Back to the episode. First is in jail. Alma, meanwhile, has been abandoned slash driven away Ellsworth with her whorish, drug-ridden ways. And she <laughs> is really having trouble combing Sophia's hair uh, and getting her to school. Also, Dan is alive. That's great. And he is uh, surprised to hear that Hurst has been arrested. Thankfully, Dan didn't succumb to any internal injuries in the night because he refused to see the doc or anything like that. But he did get a bite on the face from Captain Turner, right? I, I didn't just imagine that. It did seem like he bit his face, but then did he have much of a like wound in this episode? No. Mm-mm. Huh. I don't think so. I think yeah. that's a script. Uh, continuity thing because there was definitely like a lingering where he like screamed as the captain sort of like gnawed on his face but then in the subsequent scenes there were no like injuries yeah. on the face like what? It might be a little late for reshoots. Get the CGI in there. George Lucas <laughs> fix this for us. Also we get more of Steve. Oh, he is really really drunk and ranting in the thoroughfare. I would feel like He's doing it out of guilt, except I don't think the man's capable of that. Well, he seems to be yelling about how it's not his fault, so I do think he has a little bit of guilt, but I don't know that he could ever, like, actually have the emotional maturity to process it in that way and put a name on it. It's very coincidental timing that he's there when a young black man rides in on horseback, who we later learn is Aunt Lou's son, Odell. Out with one black guy, in with a new black guy, I guess. I guess. And uh, it's Omar Gooding, who I remember, like, back in the day watching this the first time. I was like, is that the guy from Wild and Crazy Kids? (laughs) If anyone else felt that way. It is. It absolutely is. And then now I'm like, where has he been since then? But his IMDb page is full of many projects, just nothing that I've seen. So he's around. Odell, this is a complicated subplot that I'm not sure I 100% understand and I'm going to rely on Brandy's two-watch method to understand. He was in Liberia, question mark? He was in Liberia, for reals. But then he came back and didn't tell his mom that he was back. Well, we don't know yet what exactly his plan is to, like, get to Hearst. He seems to be planning a con on Hearst that involves telling him that he found a gold strike in Liberia that I suspect doesn't actually exist as much as he tells his mother it does exist. But we know from his description of how much he hated Liberia that he really was there. He just came back to the U.S. and didn't tell his mom until the moment was convenient to show up in town and run whatever con he's trying to run. But I do feel like in this episode, the storyline is left hanging because we don't know what his exact plan is and we don't know you know we end with Lou running down the thoroughfare being like no you're not going to take my boy but then there's no confrontation the episode ends before she has a chance to do anything interesting she sidebars and she tries to get 
the general to save her son because they met in the last episode. And I guess it's a small circle of people of color in, in Deadwood, specifically black people, because, well, I guess she plays Mahjong, but. Well, the general says, your mom did me a kindness and that's why I'm here. And I'm like, she like made them lunch when they were going to hit yeah. the road. She gives Fields basically every dollar she has to her name, as far as I can tell. I think he says it's $724. Mm-hmm. To try to pay Odell to leave town and just never come back. Yeah. Which is very sad, actually, because, you know, she apparently hasn't seen her son in years. And all she wants is to get him the fuck away from Hearst. Guys, Hearst is a toxic employer. And, you know, she just, I feel like, knows that her son is in mortal peril if she involves himself. She's been dancing this dance with this white guy who basically enslaves her for who knows how long and I feel really bad for her not that we'll like spend really any amount of time like in her head but yeah isn't Aunt Lulu also the person who sent her son to uh, to Africa like she sent him to Africa because I'm guessing the sort of reconstruction period that's kind of what we're in right like mm-hmm. 1860s uh the reconstruction period was both like it was like a win for certain black people and then devastating losses because then it led to like Jim Crow and all of the other yeah. things that we know so i think as a mom who's clearly enterprising enough to sort of foresee a future where she sees her son being sort of subject to the forces of uh, whatever was American society at the time, she sends him to Liberia to to basically, it's like the new America for, for her son. And then he rejects it wholesale, comes back, and tries to trick George Hearst, which, I mean, I guess, is it possible that she's never communicated to, to her son how incredibly deadly George Hearst is? Is that a possibility? Maybe. That no, maybe. Maybe she him? sent him away and, you know, but... Yeah, it would have been better if he knew what he was getting into. Or maybe we're just meant to believe he's reckless. I think a little of both. When Odell first gets there, he is very skeptical and thinks Hearst will have an issue with him being in his mother's room, which ultimately he does. But that could be just any rich white guy, right? Like, that doesn't have to be because he's particularly afraid of Hearst in any way. And then... It does seem that he doesn't have a very well thought out plan of how he's going to do this because he plans this dinner, then ultimately goes to the bar and starts getting drunk before the dinner and seems to be trying to muster whatever strength he needs to go through with this plan. And I'm like, does he have much of a plan or is he just hoping that Hearst will be like, here's some money to, you know, invest in the claim in Liberia by son and then hope he can get away with it. I don't understand. Yeah. He does seem to have some of the um, drawbacks of youth. He's a little entitled. He's a little assuming that he can uh, just kind of like talk his way through and out of something, you know, that his salesmanship will just get him ahead. Yeah, I would call him the millennial of Deadwood. You're like, let's not malign ourselves as millennials. Like, come on. We're the good millennials. We're the old millennials, Brandy. I'm talking about the young millennials um, who just think things should come to them easier than they do. Oh, are we talking about Gen Z? No, younger millennials, not necessarily Gen Z. Uh, Younger white millennials. (laughs) 
What I'm saying is but, we knew things before the internet. Yeah, I remember before the internet. That was good times. <laughs> we should go back to that. I used a rotary phone at one point in my life. And oh, yeah, it was we had one too. <laughs> but as far as uh, cons go, I got to say, uh, I've got a gold mine in Africa is a pretty bald one. <laughs> it's like the super old version of the I'm a Nigerian prince and the I have a fortune to bequeath to you. It's like... The yes. Deadwood equivalent of that. He doesn't even appear to have like a gold nugget that he's saying came from the claim or any sort of evidence, right? Not that that would prove anything. What's the guy going to do? Lick it and be like, tastes like Africa? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know, some notarized letter of some kind? I mean, he has nothing. He has that cool necklace from Africa. I don't know if you noticed. It's like the red stone necklace. So it proves. He's been there. He has seen the golden fields of Africa. Bad plans all around. I mean, it, everyone has bad plans when it comes to hers. I will say I really love his name, though, and I think maybe I'll name my future child Odell. It has a good tone to it. Guys, this isn't going to end well. Can we agree on that? Yeah. As with most things, we agree it's not going to end well. It's a safe bet in the Deadwood world. Okay, Al visits Bullock at home. Now, this was cool. This was like a very fun, different universe for Al to be in. He's polite. It's Albert Swearingen. I love the way he announces himself at the door. I just love it. And Al's like, Seth, you said you were going to come by and then you didn't. You snuck around the other night. I thought we were going to, I thought we were going to compare notes. And uh, this Hearst thing is kind of tricky. Am I right? Meanwhile, Martha's upstairs, like, with her ear to the wall, being like, oh, do I, should I, I guess I'm going to go back down, because this doesn't sound like it's going well. I always hope that Martha's going to speak up a little bit more than she does, because you can tell from Anna Gunn's performance, at least, perhaps she's injecting it in, that she understands what's going on and the import yeah. of it more than she gets to put her two cents in about But she always just stays in her lane offering coffee and strawberries. It's meat and coffee in this case. What, what kind of meat? Oh, God. Okay. Is it the pigs from Woo? Because no, thank you. I stand by my impression that those would be delicious, but maybe not for everyone. I think it says a lot about Anna Gunn's performance that she pulls off a kind of woman of the period, like a, I don't know, a typical housewife who knows a lot more. There's more underneath the surface than she's able to express. Totally. What else happens in this episode? Seth lets Hurst out of jail. He sends a telegraph. We don't know what it's what it says, but he's in the mood. And then Sai, uh, he stops in and like consults with him. And Sai basically says, "Ooh, guess what? I know. I can get you the Ellsworth claim because Alma is on the dope, and I can fuck with her because I'm the source of it." So here's something I didn't quite get, even after my two viewings is. Sai has told Leon to basically up the dosage, let's get the widow. And then he says all this to Hurst. Hurst is pretty much down with it. And then Sai takes it back. He's He goes to Leon and he's like, never mind. Is it just because Hurst takes out his annoyance on Sai and pulls on his ear too? And everyone's feeling too emasculated to go forward with the plan? Or what? what happens here? I hadn't even realized that. Uh, um, honestly, I think I've told you, like, I, I black out when Sai's on screen. <laughs> Later, <laughs> when Leon confronts Alma and basically says, I'm not giving you dope anymore, lady. 
like that could have just as devastating an effect on her mental state. I guess maybe she could go steal some from the doc's shack while he's coughing up a lung or something. We're not seeing much so, of that. I think that actually, um, now that I hear Lynn talking about that moment, it it kind of gets me to the next moment with uh, Leon when he's having a monologue with the puddle of mud because <laughs> oh everyone inanimate he object really monologue. Pay attention <laughs> to the weird moments. <laughs> When Leon's having his moment in the puddle of mud, not Christian band, um, it's like he's kind of laying out the logic for not giving Alma the kind of laudanum that would cause her to OD, which is that, you know, he's been at Tolliver's side for so long. But if he acquiesces and manages to get Alma to take the overdose, then she dies and then he would be still sort of on the hook for whatever else Tolliver wanted because Tolliver's never afforded him uh, any kind of respect or promise of oh. anything better. Yeah. Oh, so it's Leon taking, like, making the decision on his own. No. I think so, right? No, I think Leon is afraid that if he goes through with this plan and he's a party to the murder of Alma, that then he becomes a liability and they will also kill him. Oh. So when he goes oh. to her and he's like, I'm not serving you any more dopey and all the better to stay alive when Trixie confronts him. Basically, he's afraid that they're going to kill him whether he does it or not. Mm-hmm. And then Sai ends up calling off the plan after all, after he tells Hurst about it, I guess, to regroup and decide what his own best move would be given the circumstances. What I read into that was Sai making a similar argument in his head about killing Alma, which is that once Alma's dead, then he has no more chips to play. Mm. Okay. So then if Hearst thinks they're going through with this and they're not really, how is that going to play out? I don't know. I didn't think that anybody... (laughs) I didn't think that anybody wanted Alma dead. I missed something, I guess. I thought they just wanted her to be in in a place to be manipulated. Oh, no, I think they're sick of her. Uh, my impression was that they were like, keep giving her shittier and more dope until she overdoses and dies. Yeah, that was my impression, too. Um, but I wonder how that works, because unless uh, unless Ellsworth has no legal rights to her claim, and it's solely within the provision of Mrs. Ellsworth and Sophia, that would be the only thing that I can think of. Well, it kind of feels like Hearst at this point is ready to burn the whole town down, given what he says to Richardson, where he's like, this place displeases me. It's a very casual way of saying that he's ready to, like, start murdering folks and burning things down. Yeah. Um, And I think Charlie kind of has his number, and this may be why he is trailing Bullock. It was really, really cute. Um, I like to call this, like, the bromance hard eyes scene, where he's (laughs) like, oh, I'm just gonna, I gotta go to the hardware store, too coincidental and uh i'm just gonna check the door lock here okay yeah it works um (laughs) cool all right you guys are having a conversation awesome it is cute at first i thought he was trying to keep seth from doing anything stupid again but then i realized that he was playing a little bodyguard the other moment that i want to talk about in this episode is um blazanov talking about his backstory merrick comes up to him and is basically like what's wrong and he just says like i'm sad and starts talking about his parents and, and what happened to them again. This scene literally made me cry. Goodness. It's just at the end of it when he says how much they saved to send me for study. It's just so sad. And then you ended up here in fucking Deadwood. 
And Blazanov was the one who found the body in the previous episode. Yeah. And I just remember the, the line of dialogue that he had was, this is not good. <laughs> and yeah, he like exactly. runs to the body. Yeah. yeah, and no one else has had that reaction to a body in Deadwood. You know, everyone else is just like, oh, well, this is just another dead body. Another <laughs> body with no eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, let's talk about him. He's a character that we don't get a lot of access to. This is a little unusual. He has passing friendship with Merrick, but he, between episodes, like, he's in love with a girl, and then, wow, this town's a bummer. There doesn't seem to be a through line. Like, I don't know what they're getting to with Blazanov. I don't know. I think it's just, like, a, a moment to, to take to reflect a little bit on how fucked up everything is everywhere in the world. I don't know. He's, like, the straight man a bit. Yeah. The outsider who's able to see things more clearly than insiders are. I think someone Ooh. who hasn't become sort of hardened to what's going on in the town yet. You know, he's not cynical about it. It's the next episode that we're seeing him be sad about this body. Yeah, like maybe I would true. be less less struck by it if it had been like two scenes later. But it's many, many scenes later. This is mm. he's still affected by it. That maybe that's why it struck me so much. I agree with that because think about what Blazanov's entry into town is. He's the promise of new enterprise, right? He's new technology. He's telegraph. Mm-hmm. He's come to a brand new place to set up a brand new telephone uh, telegraph shop. He's the only one who knows how to do it. There's a certain amount of promise and inspiration to his work, right? I mean, he's bringing something to the frontier that everyone needs. And so I'm sure he carries some sense of like, I'm going to make it work in this town. My parents were murdered and they worked so hard to make sure that I could have a new life and I'm going to have like a real go of it, you know? And then of course he's in Deadwood where people are murdered for like the slightest insult or not even dishonor really murdered for anything that inconveniences, you know, the, yeah. the powers that were murdered for trying to make their own life better. Like these organizers are. Exactly. You guys, I'm just yeah. realizing that, like, Blazanov and Martha are kind of perfect for each other. <laughs> um, like, they both have a tragic backstory. They've lost people that they love. Like, if only their paths had crossed. I feel like they would have a very boring conversation. <laughs> I feel like they could just be happy. Each waiting for the other one to say something else. Fine. Okay. I guess I'll just go write the fanfic okay, then. Okay, you go write that. <laughs> um, it would definitely be very remains of the day but we'll, this is the second time you've brought up remains of the day <laughs> i just love that movie but you know what i just love a slow burn that takes like two decades to resolve yeah oh yeah two decade burn is the best kind of burn okay so i have a nomination for most feminist moments i think that there were a couple of good ones here and a lot of it comes out of sort of like the Trixie Alma stuff, which, you know, two women having each other's backs most of the time is interesting. Trixie pulls a gun on Leon and then confronts Alma, who fires her because she's got her number. And then Trixie goes to Al and says, I want to turn a trick. And guys, I'm going to nominate Al as best <laughs> male feminist. <laughs> well, is it the part where he calls her a stupid bitch that makes you think that? Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> I think he might have called her a stupid cunt, but uh, he it was a loopy cunt. A loopy cunt who doesn't know when she's come up in the world. But I, this is character growth. 
this is character growth. Maybe not best male feminist, okay, but different a different note in the Al Trixie relationship. I quite liked it. Right, where he's not just sort of acknowledging that she isn't at the station that she was anymore, but he's actively reminding her of it. Yes. Yeah. And she's so defensive. She's like, it's a fucking turn of speech or whatever. It's like, is it? <laughs> I don't think it is. It's not when you're a whore going back to your old whore bar. <laughs> and also, I mean, if I'm nominating Al, I'm also nominating Trixie because she has literally nothing, never has, to gain from involving herself in Alma's addiction right. and responsibilities. And yet she will pull a gun on Leon and threaten him and confront her boss because she wants to help her. She's a great friend. I always love the appearance of that cute little Derringer, too. I'm always just like, ooh, she had it with her. <laughs> yes. What a great little pistol. And I, I honestly I didn't really have a least feminist moment. Maybe you guys do. But I thought that because there were these like standout sequences... It made sense that this was written by a lady. This isn't really a feminist sequence. I just really liked listening to her talk. Uh, was Aunt Lou sort of sussing out why her son is in Deadwood at the time that he's in Deadwood? And mm -hmm. so she backdates the letter and she tells oh, yeah. him that she knows when she sends the letters because she wants to know when she can expect letters back. And she knows that 27 days is not enough for a letter to reach her son and have him come back from Africa and get the letter and then meet her in Deadwood. So I liked her going through her thought process, which we don't actually get a, a ton of like women sort of like verbalizing their internal mm -hmm. thought. Like it in a stands out just when they do. And oftentimes it gets turned around and thrown back at them. Like when Alma was, making her proposal to Hearst, you know? Yeah. Right. Like, doing math. That that scene with Lou is also entertaining because you can tell that she's already, like, figured this out and is there's an element of sarcasm under her in, <laughs> with the whole thing as well. Praise God that you made it in 27 yes. days, you know? <laughs> Until finally he's like, oh, Lord, Mama. <laughs> has to, like, explain himself. Yeah. My friend Bianca would say that she's talking out the side of her mouth. <laughs> and then the other moment I really liked in this was Odell going to the bar. And then when General Fields comes up and offers him the money and the sheer amount of money that they're talking about basically makes racist Steve go through like crazy emojis on his face. <laughs> oh, my God. I need to rewatch this scene. He does. He's like trying to eavesdrop and his face goes through a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he goes through like a stroke and then surprise and then another stroke <laughs> like <laughs> amazing and last but not least guys so jane has fallen off the wagon she doesn't do well with funerals i think we can agree yes, on correct so it's post burial she gets drunk Joni finds her i can't understand half of what jane is saying Honestly, but like she drags her drunk ass to Shaughnessy's. She's backsliding in the same way that almost backsliding. I mean, a lot of these ladies just don't do too well when confronted with the same issues that they've dealt with in the past, right? Whether it be a marriage without love or the death of a friend yeah. or anything else. Do we think that that is like being true to their character or do we just think it's sort of like a lack of imagination or opportunity for having them grow and move in a different direction 
I think it depends on whether they come out of this loop in like yet a new place that's you can backslide, but it has to be like two steps forward from there in order for the story to have had worth, in my opinion. Yeah. Al always gets these really interesting character development moments. Um, and he, he, I guess he doesn't have any vices, not the way that Joni and Alma and Jane has like these vices that drag them down, right? Like it feels like the three women really have these like substance abuse issues that like will uh, will reappear no matter what so when mm. al has these well, when al ha- is confronted with an obstacle and that he has to solve we are always absolutely invested in his methodology of solving this new crisis you know like in the previous seasons and now with george Herschel, like in the previous season when he had to deal with his bladder stone you know he we were interested in how he solved it then and we just don't get to see that with the women like and that's what i would like is to see them try to resolve new obstacles in new ways Mm-hmm. Not even like that it's backsliding, but just that give us something else for them to struggle against. I guess we'll see how all of this develops over the back half of this final season. We are in the home stretch, guys. We've only got uh, six, six episodes, more episodes. And then the movie. Well, we will be back next week to enter the second half of the last season. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at LadywoodCast. You can find me at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. You can find me at Lynn Sternberger. <laughs> you can find me at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you so much for listening. You look like school to me And I'm not too old to see That you look like gold Said you look like gold With the heart, the joy you bring I said you look like gold Are you looking like gold? Like the rays now from the sun When the new day has just begun I 